of us here. And so we trust you to use this time in your great name. Amen. Well, today is the second of our four-part mini-series called The Practices of the Church, which looks at foundational aspects of the church that we want to be crystal clear in the minds of all of our members. Last week, we looked at baptism, and, and next to that, there's no other practice more characteristic of Christianity or so, or so clearly commanded by Jesus than communion, or what many churches call the Lord's Supper. Nearly every single denomination of Christianity throughout the last 2,000 years has emphasized the vital place of the Lord's Supper in the life of the church. But despite its universal acceptance, the precise understanding and practice of communion has actually been a battleground. It's been a major dividing issue for the church. And so to, to try and better understand what God's Word says about communion and its major role in the life of the church, we're going to answer four questions about communion this morning. We're going to look at what is it, who is it for, why is it significant, and how do we practice it? That's where we're heading. What is it, who is it for, why is it significant, how do we practice it? For our first question, it's important to recognize that the Lord's Supper was established and explained by the Lord Jesus himself the very night before he was crucified. That's what we heard in our scripture reading just a moment ago. And there in Luke 22, Jesus established communion during the Passover meal, which was a meal loaded with symbolic significance. Every part of the meal, it reminded God's people of how he saved them from their slavery in Egypt through the blood of sacrificial lambs that were smeared over the door frames of their houses. At the end of that symbolic meal, Jesus instituted a new memorial. The elements of communion are simple. Jesus said it's the bread and the fruit of the vine. And those represent Jesus' body and his blood, which were about to be given and spilled on the cross to open up the new covenant through the sacrificial death of the perfect Lamb of God, through Jesus Christ. And that's what had been foreshadowed all along, ultimately, through the Passover, Paul repeated, repeats Jesus' commands concerning the bread and the cup in 1 Corinthians 11, saying, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Drawing mainly from these passages, let me give you a definition of communion. And this is the definition that all preaching uh, coaches would say is woefully too long, uh, way too long to be helpful, but I'm going to give it to you, and then we're going to unpack it for most of the rest of the message, okay? So communion, it's a symbolic memorial instituted by Christ to ground, spiritually nourish, and unite the church in the gospel as believers engage in it by faith. So for some of you, that's maybe not helpful at all. Again, if you're a note taker, don't worry, I'll, I'll give it to you again, and then we're going to unpack it. Communion is a symbolic memorial it was instituted by Christ himself. And it was instituted to ground, spiritually nourish, and unite the church in the gospel as believers engage in it by faith. Let's unpack that. First, communion is a symbolic memorial. The Passover used food 
to symbolize God's salvation. And in the same way, the elements in communion, they don't mysteriously become or convey to us the physical body of Christ, like Catholics and Lutherans argue. We're not actually eating Jesus' physical body and blood. Instead, his words, this is my body and this is my blood. These are metaphorical, just like his statements that, that I am the vine. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the door. You know, as Christians, we don't believe that Jesus literally turns into a door, right? There's not, there's not a door Jesus turns into and you, you open that to get in to heaven. We understand that's a, a metaphor. And when people insist on the bodily presence of Christ in communion, I don't just think that's a wrong interpretation. It actually creates other theological problems that contradict other passages of Scripture. Therefore, Jesus, Jesus does not come back bodily each week when we take communion, but Jesus is spiritually present with believers during communion. And so the first thing to note is that the elements of communion are symbolic. Question two, who is communion for? Well, communion is for Christians. Communion is for Christians, and by that I mean true believers in Jesus Christ, not simply those who call themselves Christians, but those who are born again and know God through faith in Christ. Remember, the, the, ele- the elements of communion, they point to the Savior. And they, they are to be received in grateful remembrance of his sacrifice. And unbelievers, by definition, they cannot do that. Unbelievers can't do that because they haven't yet repented and trusted Christ's sacrifice to save them. So communion is for believers, not unbelievers. And even more specifically, communion is for believers gathered together as the church. Five times in Paul's lengthy, lengthy instructions about communion in 1 Corinthians 11, he uses the phrase, when you come together. When you come together describes when they take it. And in verse 18, he specifically says, when you come together as a church. The implication is that believers are to engage in and to enjoy communion together. It's an act of worship done within the context of the gathered church. Now, if communion is for believers... What does it accomplish? Now, why is it so significant that Jesus instituted the eve of his death and made it one of only two ordinances or sacred practices given to the church? Well, that question, it brings us to point number three. Why is communion significant? In our definition, we said that communion grounds, nourishes, and unites the church in the gospel. So first, communion is meant to ground or firmly base the church's existence, identity, and health in the gospel. This reminds us that the, the gospel is the source of, of our church. It's the source of our salvation, the source of our spiritual health. And it does that by repeatedly memorializing and highlighting Christ's saving work. Now, we need this constant grounding because we're so prone as human beings to forget what matters most in life and to become distracted and and even consumed with temporary rather than eternal things. And one example of this that I've noticed in myself recently is with parenting. I love being a dad. I love being a parent. And I have some some sense of the the responsibility and the the opportunity of parenting. And yet on, on my way home, as much as I love being a dad, if I've had a long day, if I'm tired, as I come home, if I don't get some time to to pray and, and to ask God for grace and to ask God for help um, when I come back home, then what can often happen is I'll walk in the door and I'll, I'll give you one example of how this plays out. 
My kids can rush to me with like their, their drawings that they scribbled during the day. And if I'm not in the spirit, it can be easy to almost be that as a distraction to all the, the messes that I see and the other things that I still need to get done when I get to the house. But when, when I've had time with the Lord, when I, when I remember how important parenting is to show my kids the delight of God, when I walk into the house, those scribbled drawings, those are exciting to me. It's like, that's awesome. What else, what, what else did you do today? And I, w- I want to connect with them because I see, I see the bigger picture. I see what the priority is. And in a similar way, I think for most Christians, our need isn't to be instructed in new doctrines. For most of us, that's not, that's not the primary need. For most of us, the need is to go deeper into the basic gospel truths that we already know. We need to understand those more deeply, especially the implications of them for our lives. An old proverb says, repetition is the mother of all learning. I like that. Repetition is the mother of all learning. And, and that's what communion allows us to do. It allows us to repeat the gospel, repeat and rehearse the gospel to ourselves again and again. The elements of communion themselves, they engage our senses. They provide this tangible and tactile experience that is designed to help focus our minds on remembering the historical facts of the gospel, the most important facts in all of history. This is what both Luke and Paul emphasize in their explanation of the Lord's Supper by recording Jesus' commands, do this in remembrance of me. What's your role in communion as a believer? It's to remember. It's to remember by directing your mind and heart to to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Those gospel truths and the gospel promises that God makes us. The implications of the gospel in our lives, on our identity. And what what the gospel means in terms of our life circumstances and trials and and successes. Let me give you a, a helpful phrase here. During communion, we're to remember with expectation. We're to remember with expectation. We're to remember and worship Christ for what he has done for us in the past, but we're also to expect God to do all that he has promised for us both now and in the future. And this brings us to the second vital role of communion. It's meant to nourish believers. To nourish believers. Now this nourishment is not primarily physical, but spiritual. And Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Paul's referring to communion here. And notice how he describes what happens when believers take the bread and the cup. He says it's a participation in the blood and the body of Jesus. This goes much deeper than than simply remembering a past event. The word participation is koinonia, and that means sharing in, fellowshipping, or experiencing together. And so the idea is that believers during communion, we somehow share in Christ's body and blood and his death. Have you ever wondered what that means? How, How does our physical eating the bread and cup allow us to to share in Christ's body and blood. John Piper explains these verses this way. When believers eat the bread and drink the cup physically, we do another kind of eating and drinking spiritually. 
We eat and drink, that is, we take into our lives what happened on the cross. By faith, by trusting all that God is for us in Jesus, we nourish ourselves with the benefits that Jesus obtained for us when he bled and died on the cross. Let me read that last sentence again. By faith, we nourish ourselves with the benefits that Jesus obtained for us when he bled and died on the cross. Don't miss this point. Communion isn't primarily about what you do. Communion is primarily about what God wants to do in you through it. Communion, it's not just a, an, another obligation. It's not just some, some practice that God gave to the church. Communion is meant to be a gift. Communion is meant to be a, a blessing where he wants to nourish and strengthen your soul as you feast on the gospel by faith. It's meant to be a regular feast for your soul in him. I have a, a picture here for you. I don't know about you, but uh, one of my favorite things in life is when I get together, you know, often in the holidays with my family, we'll, we'll regularly invite friends. So I'm with some of my favorite people, and then I have a chance to eat some of my favorite food. And not just sample a little bit, but I, I can eat as much of it as I want. And those times, those are some of the sweetest times. Those are some of the times that I look forward to the most. I think that's the way that God wants us to view communion. We get to be together with our church family, and we get to remember our Savior. We get to worship Christ and celebrate what he has done for us. And the purpose of communion, it reminds me of the wonderful invitation in Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Christians, Christians say amen. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Christians say that's right. Jesus is the best thing in life. There's nothing better that you can experience, nothing better that you can pursue in life, in communion. It gives us a designated opportunity every single week to spiritually savor the gospel. Now, some of you are probably thinking, I take communion every week, and I don't always feel spiritually nourished. Why is that? Like, can, can Christians take communion and not, not experience the benefits of it? Yes. <laughs> Yes, of course that can happen. And the reason is that communion, it doesn't convey grace by the mere activity of the ritual. Just going through the motions will not bring the benefits of communion. On the contrary, Paul, in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, he actually says that when the Corinthian church gathered together and took communion, he says, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. His point is that it would be better if they didn't meet at all because when they were gathering, they were creating divisions and dishonoring God by how they practiced communion. Now, we'll circle back to that. We'll look at the dysfunction in Corinth later, but for now, just understand you will miss the spiritual nourishment available in communion if you don't participate in faith. You, mil you will miss on the benefits that God wants to bring if you don't engage in it by faith, and this is why expectation is so important. This is why our, our role in communion is to rem remember with expectation at the end of our definition, we said that communion only accomplishes its purposes when believers engage in it by faith. Faith is a confidence in, in God's word. It's an expectation that God will fulfill his promises. And so as we remember the saving work of Christ, as we expect him to expose and satisfy all the needs of our souls in communion, if we do that, we can begin to experience the benefits that he obtained for us on the cross. 
Benefits like the full forgiveness of our sins. Benefits like full acceptance before God. We have peace with God. Benefits like the Holy Spirit. God has indwelled us. He wants to direct our lives. He wants to give us power over sin. He he can transform us to help us learn to love like him. And best of all, we remember that, that we have the hope of living forever in Christ's bodily presence. Someday we'll be in his bodily presence with him in glory. As believers take communion in faith, meditating on the gospel, the Holy Spirit, he'll work in our hearts according to the need of the moment. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to experience Christ's spiritual presence through communion. Now, does that mean that you're always going to feel a certain way or even feel close to God as you take communion in faith? No. No. That's because sometimes the need of the moment is for us to be exposed and humbled because of our sin. Sometimes it's, it's to strengthen us or, or comfort us when we're discouraged. Sometimes it's, it's to refresh our hearts with his love and joy and remind us of our eternal hope. You know, I think sometimes Christians feel like during communion, they kind of have to be somber. Like that's like kind of like, you know, I need to, I need to kind of be somber here. And I'd say sometimes that's appropriate. But hopefully on a regular basis, communion is one of the most joyful times as we remember Christ, as we remember the, the gospel and all the benefits that Christ has won for us. Now, as we take communion, some of those needs and many others, a combination of them, those are some of the needs that the Holy Spirit wants to meet in us. The takeaway that I, I hope you'll never forget is that God has given, given the church communion because he wants to bless you. He wants to bless you and nourish your soul as you feast on the glory of who Christ is by faith. Now, there's one more aspect of communion we need to recognize, and that is its role in uniting the church. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Paul says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. He's talking about communion in this section, and his point is that just as early believers would take a loaf of bread and all tear off one piece for themselves to eat during communion, spiritually, believers are all united to one another because of our shared union in Christ. He's, he's the head of the church. And so communion isn't only about nourishing and strengthening, strengthening our vertical relationship with God. It's also about reinforcing our devotion and love for other believers, particularly in the local church. That seems to be why the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper when gathered together, to remember not only how God had saved them individually, but also how he'd saved others too, how he'd saved those in the church as well, and how he had sovereignly brought them together. You know, when I'm down spiritually, one of the things that encourages me the most is, is when I look around the room and I remember how God has saved some of you and changed some of your lives. That's so encouraging for me. At the same time, when I'm, I'm proud, one of the ways that God humbles me often when we're together is to remind me that God's desire is not just for me to love my family, and that can be challenging enough for me, but he wants me to love our church family. He, he wants me to love you all with the love that he displayed on the cross for me. He wants me to learn to love with Calvary love. And so when you put that all together, here, here's the way that I, I think you should think about baptism and communion. Baptism, in many ways, it's like the door 
into the church. It's not what saves you, but remember last week when people accepted the gospel message, they were baptized and then they were added to the church. Baptism is going public with your faith. It's identifying publicly with Christ. And so baptism, it's like, it's like you're welcomed in the front door into the church. But what is communion then? It's the dining room table. It's the dining room table where you regularly come together with other believers to be nourished and to enjoy each other, to have fellowship with one another. And so rightly understood then, communion, it's not just about strengthening our love and devotion to Christ, but also our love and unity with other believers. What I hope you'll understand is that even though it's a relatively small amount of time in your week, communion has been given by God an outsized importance in the life of a Christian. It's a time each, each week for us to have a, a soul check, a heart check. And it's also something that God has given to, to unite believers. One of the main reasons, he says, for believers to come together, which is so important for our spiritual well-being, to come together and worship Christ through communion. Now, if that's what communion is, if that's what its purposes are, how do we practice it here at Walnut Creek Church? Well, first, we practice it weekly. The Bible never gives a prescription for how regularly churches should practice communion, but because it's such a weighty thing, there's some very good churches that choose to take the Lord's Supper only once a month, and some even just once a quarter. Now, that allows them to explain the significance of of communion more thoroughly. It helps guard people from treating communion as a formality, and I respect that position. I think there is some wisdom to it. But as pastors, because of how significant and beneficial communion is, because of all the reasons that we've just talked about, we see communion as an opportunity each week for the church to reflect on Christ's saving work and let the Holy Spirit minister to them. And so that's our rationale for why we do it weekly. Second, we take communion corporately or all together as a church family. You know, since one of the big aspects of communion is to cultivate unity, uh, we've decided as pastors to ask people to come forward and take the elements from the front of the church. And we think that that helps in two ways. First, it just gives people a chance to get up and see each other and, and to smile at one another. That's a, that is a good thing. Again, it doesn't have to be somber every time that you take communion. And that's related to the second main point or benefit that we see of, of having the elements up front. And that's to emphasize that when we take communion, we do it as a church. It's not just an individual thing that you're doing, but it's a way that we're, we're corporately worshiping Christ together. Now, if the church takes communion as the church, does that mean that everyone who shows up on Sunday should take communion? Well, the obvious answer, if we remember who communion is for, is no. Communion, we said, is only for believers, and that's something we want to do a better job of emphasizing as pastors. You know, this has been one of the the areas, a number of areas in the Lord's Supper or communion where churches historically have had a lot of debates, a lot of different, a lot of different uh, opinions and practices. And the technical uh, term for this is fencing the table. Who, who do you welcome to take the Lord's table, to take communion? Now, that spectrum on one side, you have no fence at all. So this would be churches that they don't explain communion, and they just welcome everyone to take it. 
Like, the idea is that there isn't offense. Like, that's the, what they're trying to emphasize. Like, if you brought a pet ferret, they would probably let your pet ferret take communion. Like, that's the whole point. And churches like that, you're, you're not going to find probably any gospel preaching churches there. Now, another step forward is to explain communion, but then you just, you don't say anything else. Everyone's welcome to take it. Another step to, on that spectrum is to explain communion and then to say it's for believers. You just let, let people self-select. Another step kind of further from that is to explain communion and then to say it's for baptized believers. A pretty big step after that, you'll have people who will say it's, well, it's communion, they'll explain it, they'll say it's for baptized believers, and they have to be members of a local church. Not necessarily this one, but they have to be members somewhere. And then another step beyond that is to say all those things and say, uh, actually, it's only for members of this church who can take communion. And actually, there's many good churches who hold that position. And they don't hold it just because they, they think it's practical or it's a preference. Most of those churches convictionally, convictionally would say, we think this is how God wants churches to practice communion. Now, if you're interested, I can explain why they think that and why I'm not persuaded. But kind of another step, a big step from that, is say you have to be a member in good standing. And on the pretty far end of the spectrum, I think this was Jonathan Edwards' position, You'd have to be all those things, baptized, member of the church, in good standing, and you'd have to have a, a transformative experience with Christ in the sense of you'd have to have this emotional encounter somehow with God. So as you can see, it's a pretty big spectrum. And Pastor Schreiner and I, because we like to push the envelope, we've decided that to take communion at our church, uh, you have to have you know, all of those things, baptized, member of the church, and... You also have to have the Lord Jesus appear to you physically and give you a new name in Christ. And then you have to give a million dollars to the church each year. That's all you ha- that is all you have to do to take communion here. <laughs> Just kidding. If you have a million dollars, though, you're welcome to give it <laughs> to the church. That's not, that's not our position. But we have decided as pastors to change our current practice. And what we decided to do is to start communicating in our introduction to communion that it's open for baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ rather than, rather than just saying it's open to believers like we've done in the past. Now, why, why the change? Well, as we discussed last week, baptism preceded believers being welcomed into the church. Remember the idea of the, the door? You know, alongside of understanding the gospel, it seems to be the minimal threshold for a credible profession of faith. And that's because a Christian is someone who trusts Jesus as their Savior and Lord. It's someone who they've submitted to King Jesus. And this doesn't mean they'll perfectly obey them, but a Christian wants to obey Christ. They take the commands of Christ seriously. And the first command that Jesus gives to his followers is to be baptized. This clarification, we believe, will help us more effectively communicate that baptism isn't just for those who call themselves Christians, but for those who have been born again. And we think it will also help us to share the gospel more clearly with unbelievers who come. We think it will help guard unbelievers from potentially having a false assurance of of salvation by coming and just taking the elements, but not not understanding the gospel, not understanding their their need for Christ. And we also think it will help us protect the church from taking communion in an unworthy way, which we'll get to in a few moments. Now, if you weren't here last week, I could anticipate some of you thinking, is it possible for someone to be a Christian who hasn't been baptized? Of course. 
We covered that last, last week. Of course, all believers are there at one point because baptism isn't what saves you. But someone in that position, someone who says, I'm, I'm a Christian, I haven't, I haven't been baptized. As pastors, we'd ask, why not? We'd ask you to, to start there to prioritize that step of obedience first. Now, I can imagine others of you wondering, is it possible to have a different conviction than the pastors on this? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, I think there's certainly room to have different convictions on this. But I do want you to understand, as pastors, we haven't hastily come to this decision. You know, I was on a team of four pastors, one from each of our locations, and we spent about a year trying to dig into what's the Bible say about communion, different ways communion's been practiced in history. We've reached out to a number of churches that we respect to get counsel on it. And the, the reason we recommended this to all the other pastors and all of them accepted the recommendation and approved of it is because we want our church to have a very high view of both baptism and communion. We want the church to see how valuable those things are and to put the biblical weight onto both of those things. And we believe that right now, currently, this is the best way to shepherd our church in that direction. And so that, that's why we're making this shift. And so how do we practice communion then? Well, we practice it weekly. We practice it corporately. And then finally, one last sub-point that is by far the most important is that we seek to take communion reverently. Or to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 11 in a worthy manner rather than an unworthy one. Now, if you've never read 1 Corinthians 11 before, let me share a section of it that has haunted many believers. Now, this passage has made many Christians hesitant about participating in communion at all. After explaining the purpose of communion, Paul says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of a sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we, were if we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. This is a shocking passage on a number of different levels. Paul says many in the Corinthian church were sick and some had even died. When he says fallen asleep, he's saying they've actually died because they were taking communion in an unworthy way. Now, the Bible is clear that often people's sickness and their death often that's not connected with their sin at all. Often there's no correlation. But at least in this passage, we see that sometimes it can be. At least sometimes it could be. And so it's not hard to see why this passage has made many believers very afraid of taking communion in an unworthy way. Now, what does that mean? How, how do you take communion in an unworthy way? How are you supposed to examine yourself? Well, it doesn't mean that if you had a bad week spiritually, that you missed some of your spiritual disciplines, Maybe you violated your conscience. It doesn't mean that you should just skip communion because of that. That view is very, very common. That's the way a lot of people think about communion, but it is backwards. And it's backwards because as one theologian points out, the problem Paul was addressing in Corinth, it was not unworthy, participant, or unworthy participants. It was unworthy participation. So it's not, it's not unworthy persons that are the problem. It's an unworthy practice. And the reason this is important is, it because, is because if communion was about how worthy believers are 
to share in and enjoy the benefits of the gospel each week, none of us should take communion ever. <laughs> we should just cut that out of our, our service because we don't approach Christ because of our worthiness. Jesus, the very one who instituted communion, he also tells us that what we deserve from God is his wrath. That's what we deserve. We don't deserve Christ to spiritually nourish us. We don't deserve his nourishment. We deserve punishment. We deserve eternal judgment from God in hell. That's what we deserve. Yes, Jesus Christ is God. Yes, he came to earth to bring the good news of the gospel. But that message is not, you can clean up your life and make yourself right with God. You can get religious. You can go to church regularly. You can take communion and cover over your sins. It doesn't, take, it doesn't matter if you went to church every day and took communion every single day. That wouldn't pay for a single one of your sins. Now, the good news of the gospel is not that we can make ourselves right with God. It's that the same holy God who hates each of our sins, he was willing to take on human flesh so that he could be punished for all of them in our place. 2,000 years ago, Jesus' literal body with skin tissue, blood vessels, with nerve endings just like ours, it was tortured. It was torn into. And his life-sustaining blood, it was freely spilled. Jesus died in your place. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he conquered death. He rose from the grave, and he did that so that he could offer eternal life as a gift through his death. If you are a Christian, all of your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. If you are a Christian, you are fully accepted by God. If you're a Christian, you can boldly come into God's presence because of what Christ did for you. Anyone who places their faith in Christ alone for salvation, not trusting their good efforts, not trusting baptism, not trusting in communion, but those who trust Christ alone, they're forgiven all of their sins. Even the sins of our unworthy worship, our far from perfect worship of God. Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. If we've been saved by grace, if we've been saved by the blood of Christ as a free gift through faith, then it would totally undermine the very gospel message that we celebrate if we had to be good enough each week to participate in communion. In fact, communion, it's meant to help remind believers of the love, acceptance, and power that we possess in Christ even on the weeks where we sin and fail the most. So Paul's issue, it was not that the Corinthians were unworthy to take communion, but that they were partaking in an unworthy manner. And the context, it clarifies what that unworthy manner was. In verses 20 through 22, Paul says, when you come together then, it's not to eat the Lord's supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. Paul, he, he is upset about what's happening in Corinth. He is so stern with them. And in Corinth, the church, they included a meal when they took the Lord's Supper. And what Paul is pointing out is that you're, you're more excited about the meal than about communion. That's why he says when you get together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. 
He's saying, you're not coming, you're not coming together to worship Christ. And so they, they were treating communion just like an ordinary meal, not as a sacred practice, just as, as an opportunity to stuff their faces. In fact, it, it says some were actually getting drunk. It seems like those who were, were wealthy, it seems like the people had means. They would probably eat first. Maybe people would bring their food. And so there are some people who are gorging themselves. And it seems like the poor at the church, they didn't get any bread. They didn't get a little, little drop from the cup. They didn't get any of the elements to celebrate communion. That, that's the dysfunction that's going on. And so it's not surprising that there were major divisions in the church at Corinth. And so that's why Paul is so strongly rebuking them. And that's why he reminds them of why Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the first place. That's the background for taking communion in an unworthy manner and for examining yourself. Paul, he wants them to examine, why are you taking communion? Like, what's, your, what's your motivation? Are you contributing to this hot mess that is, that is going on in the church? That's the backdrop. Now, does that mean that you can only take communion in an unworthy manner if you're getting just totally hammered at church each week? Like you're like taking all the, like the communion, the wafers, hoarding those? No, no. If you treat communion as just a religious ritual, if you just eat the, the bread, eat the cup, without recognizing what it's pointing to, without any attempt to worship God and honor God through it, then you're participating in an unworthy manner. Now, if you guys are like me, probably many of you are, are feeling convicted right now for how often you've taken communion in an unworthy manner. I know that's happened many times to me. There are times where my, where my mind is, is just somewhere else during communion. And I found that actually after becoming a pastor, especially a preacher, I think this has almost been harder because we take communion right after the message. And right after the message, you know where my mind wants to go? Did I say what I wanted to say? Did I communicate what I wanted to communicate? And that, that can just totally dominate my thinking. And so often I have to just say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. And, and what I try and do is, is focus on the elements, the bread and the cup. This represents Jesus' body, and Jesus commanded me to do this. This is an opportunity right now to obey my Savior. And I often I'll think about Jesus' promise. If, if you obey me, I'll reveal myself to you. This is an opportunity, God, to trust you, and I, I want you to reveal yourself to me through, through this time. All of us are going to battle with different distractions. But if week in and week out, you just kind of walk thoughtlessly to the front, just take the elements, go back to your seat, and you're thinking about football. You're just thinking about what you're going to eat later. You're not, you're not attempting to worship Christ at all. You're taking communion in an unworthy manner. And that's a serious thing. If you're not a Christian, you shouldn't take the elements. You should pass on the elements. If you're a believer, you should repent. You should repent. Should you not take communion if that's how you've been doing it? Well, if you truly repent, you should take communion and you should celebrate how God's grace is so great, how he can cover even our, our imperfect worship of him. One other situation where I think it'd be appropriate to abstain from communion is if as a Christian, you're living in unrepentant sin. Maybe one example is if there's someone you're not willing to forgive. I'm not saying that you're, you're trying to forgive and it's difficult. If it's just in your heart, it's like, I'm not going to forgive that person. I'm not going to do it. You're, you're nursing a grudge. You should not take communion then. That, that, that will be worse for your soul. That will harden your heart more because you're just going through the motions. It'll make you more of, more of a hypocrite. If you're un, unwilling to, to submit to Christ, 
You're not going to engage then in faith. Remember, the issue is not are you worthy as a Christian to take communion, but are you taking it in a worthy way? Are you seeking to worship Christ through it? So just to, to review, what is communion? It's a symbolic memorial. Who is it for? Believers gathered together as a church. Why is it significant? It grounds, nourishes, and unites the church in the gospel as believers engage in it by faith. And how do we practice it? Weekly, corporately, and most importantly, reverently. Not as worthy participants, but in a worthy manner, remembering what Christ has done and expecting him to work through it. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. And God, we thank you for the incredible grace that communion reminds us of and points us towards every single week when we get together. God, I pray as, as a church, I pray that you'd help us to have a high view of baptism and communion. And I pray that we view those things the way that you do. And I pray that by your grace, we'd see many, many more people come to know you and to be baptized and to celebrate and take communion with us. Even in a few moments here, God, I pray that as we take communion, that we, we would do it in, the, in just a fresh way. God, that we would connect with you and God, we'd be so, so grateful for what you've accomplished for us. And so we thank you for this time and again ask you uh, to use it in each one of our hearts. Amen.